0: All right, hey, we've been in this sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, like I mentioned. And Nehemiah, again, is this person who was a cupbearer to the king and others like Ezra, who's a priest. They actually come to us, here's a timeline of a chart of kind of the story of the people of Israel just to locate us as we've been exploring uh, Nehemiah. And we've been calling this sermon series the work of renewal. What does it mean for us to be part of this work of renewal? And notice where we find ourselves, it's in this green section. I realize this isn't the most sophisticated chart, but it does the best job in my estimation of just clearly showing the different seasons that the people of Israel found themselves in. What you'll notice about the story of God and the story of scripture is that the people of God, it's not like this story of health, wealth, and prosperity. In fact, it's actually a story of people who constantly and regularly find themselves in seasons of dislocation and dysregulation. So Nehemiah, in this green section, the period from the exile to the Messiah, who's Jesus. It's this time when the people of Israel have been exiled to Babylon, and slowly there's a group that makes their way back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They're not in any position of positional power or financial power. Instead, there are people who are desperate to see God move to fulfill the promises of God people who have felt a longing and dysregulation. And this is where Nehemiah finds himself. Now, we've been exploring different themes of how Nehemiah, he finds his own voice in being able to approach the king. Uh, he's someone who also is, is someone who's able to assess with reality, as we talked about last week, give a, an honest assessment of the predicament that the people find themselves in as they examine the walls and the rubbles and the ruins um, and the fi- that have been destroyed by fire, uh, as well as kind of conquest. And so we come to this passage now, this riveting passage, and notice how this riveting passage begins. Look what it says. It says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate And if you notice in the scripture reading, there's actually 32 verses that basically have the same rhythm and cadence to it. And it's constantly the same thing. It's basically, Zachar, son of Imri, built it next to them. The fish gate, meanwhile, was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah, and so on and so forth. Now, in total, in chapter 3, there's actually 74 names that are listed as part of this rebuilding project. Uh, Jordan, you can thank me later for not getting the whole passage up there. Yeah, it was only 14 verses. But if you were to read further, it has the same rhythm. There's name after name of people. Now, as we, as we investigate what exactly are we getting at when it comes to this passage, especially chapter 3, we're talking about what is the work of renewal. Number two, we're, we're looking at um, who is part of the work of renewal. And three, we're going to look at, now how do I get involved in the renewal that God has for us? So when it comes to what is the work of renewal, here's what I'd love for you to notice, even in this passage. It immediately, it starts with Eliashib, as well as the fellow priests. Now, most of us, whenever we think of doing the work of God, as these people were doing, the priests, it'd be Eliashib and the, the fellow priests, what they devoted themselves to was reading scripture and praying and preaching and leading Bible studies. And doing such with such a pious face. You know, like this is what we think of priests. (laughs) But I love this. The first thing that it says about these priests is they basically pick up a hammer and a shovel. And guess what? Rebuild the sheep gate. They actually use their hands to do the work of rebuilding. And in fact, all of chapter 3 is all about the work of rebuilding rebuilding with one's hands, of picking up a shovel, of doing this work. Now, a lot of times in the world that we inhabit, especially when it comes to faith, we often think of faith in this sacred, secular way. What's sacred is really what's happening in this room where there's a preacher and there's music and there's singing and we worship, we talk about God. But what I do throughout the week doesn't really matter to God. In fact, I'm using most of the week to think about what I'm going to repent of so that I could come to, on Sundays and then ease my conscience of being here. And yet, here's what's so fascinating about this passage. As you can see, it's so mundane and even boring. Sorry, God, not to say the scripture is boring. But right, it's even boring. It's just this super mundane, everyday life. But here's what it reveals. It reveals that everything is actually spiritual. Everything is spiritual. What I do with my hands, what I do throughout the week, uh, the work that I do in church settings, but even outside the church, my nine to five, the work that I do, everything is spiritual. Now, of course, there are some vocations that inherently kind of have been birthed out of corruption, but nonetheless, when it comes down to it, Most of every profession, especially in a town like this, has some sort of redemptive quality to it. Whether you're in the arts or in finance or in law or in education, all of us and the work that we do, everything is spiritual. Uh, There's actually this Venn diagram that I'd love to show you. It's from a ministry called Saturate. Check out what it says. Now, it says, you see at the top, it says, Jesus is Lord of all. It says, non dualistic spirituality. Now, Here's what dualistic spirituality looks like. Dualistic spirituality looks like this bifurcation of sacred and secular. They're sacred work, and only the, the religious leaders are the sacred people who wear gray sweaters and jeans and gray shoes, you know, <laughs> the uniform for... Uh. But then the rest of us, we're not so sacred. We're not so used by God. But the reality is that's a dualistic type of spirituality, um, what God is inviting us to is an everything is spiritual kind of spirituality, where every part of our lives, what we do Monday to Friday, what we do on the weekends is spiritual. Now, as someone who kind of grew up, seeped in this idea that what is spiritual is doing the Lord's work, uh, and uh, being a vocational pastor, I remember like one of the things that was very new for me was when we, um, when we had our first child, David, and he was a little toddler, He's 11 now, but I remember, like, Tina, my wife, would say, oh, can you, can you sit with David, and could you read him a book, and like, immediately, I was like, it's not my job, like, I'm a, I'm a, like, I'm a man, first of all, and I don't do that kind of thing. Now, you got to understand, the reason why these thoughts came to me was because what I grew up with was, like, my dad did not spend any time with us as kids. In fact, he, later on, he became a vocational minister, and his everything that he would tell us was like, I am here to do the Lord's work, and it was almost at the expense of his family. And so as a result, like, when my, my wife asked me to read a book to my son, I'm just like, Talking to me? Like, isn't, isn't that your job? You know, and she's like, no, no, I want you to do it. And I'm like, okay. You want me to read the Bible to him? She's like, no, I just want you to read a book. And uh, uh, just, a, just a normal little book for toddlers. Okay, I'll do this. And I, I got to tell you, everything in me to sit down to learn how to be present with my son, to read him a book and to laugh with him, like everything, it was against everything that I had been trained to do because that's not sacred and that's not important, especially in light of being a man of the cloth. (coughs) Tina, of course, was like, whatever, you know? But it's true, everything is spiritual. It's not just what happens on Sundays or at Bible studies or whatever else, being present with my son, laughing with him, learning how to be present and attuned to him. Everything is spiritual. Now, if you notice in this Venn diagram, you can see when it comes to God, church, and the world, oftentimes these things can be at odds with one another, or we can only get two of the three. Now, notice at the top, right, um, when you only have God and the church, and it's void from our work in the world, it actually says non-missional spirituality. Worship is done in abstract, um, spooky church expression, I hope that's not us, but sometimes it can be spooky, right? Spooky church expression. Theology done in abstract where it's not grounded in our everyday lives. Now, that's one kind of way in which we might view the world that's void of the world. Now, notice the church and the world that's void of God, the presence of God. It says technique-oriented faith, dry religiosity, uh, moralism, and legalism that we can easily fall into. Or becomes far more formulaic, and it's not about meeting the living God. Now, meanwhile, God and the world, there's God's presence in all things. We've talked about common grace. Um, now, look, we're looking for that middle section in the Venn diagram, unifying our lives under God and sanctifying the everyday, that what we do in our everyday lives and journeys at work and hopefully being a people of renewal Whether we're priests or we're carpenters or we're in finance or education, like I mentioned, we are a people that all of life, we approach it in such a manner in which everything is sacred. And we bring it before God Now, this is what Christians believe, not that there's this bifurcation between sacred and secular, but that everything is spiritual. Now, if that's the case, if it's the case that everything is spiritual, the work that we do Monday to Friday, uh, as well as on the weekends, is spiritual, then who is part of this work of renewal? (laughs) Well, it only makes sense then that that to to do the work of renewal, if we could go to the next slide, it means that each one of us, uh, oh, thank you, uh, to do the work of renewal, Yeah, we'll go to, okay, let's start there. Jesus' followers are needed everywhere. Now, let's go back to this passage, because check this out. Look at what it says. In Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate, and Zakir, son of Imri, built it next to them. Uziel, son of Harhaya, one of the goldsmiths, it's, mentioned this person's profession, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. On and on, it talks about different people and their names. Like I mentioned, 74 different names. And I I love how these little clues are given. There's priests, and there's perfume makers, and there's goldsmiths, and there's sons, and there's daughters that are mentioned all throughout chapter three. And what does that reveal to us? It means to do the work of renewal, everyone, Jesus' followers are needed everywhere, that every single one of us then participate in the work of renewal. It's not just like, oh, there's just those spiritual all-stars over there, and they're the ones who are doing the work of God. No. What if each one of us took on this call to be people of renewal? Now, I realize some of you might be saying like, oh, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom right now, and I don't know if... But do you realize the work that you're doing in rearing your child, lovingly committing to them, the work you're doing in strolling them around and bringing so much joy to the city? Because isn't that true? Like most of us, whenever we see a baby in the city, it's so awesome. Um, See, every one of us is needed in this work of renewal. Whether you're a perfume maker or goldsmith or a priest, everyone is required. Everyone. Now, um, there's actually this story from May of 1940. Um, Allied forces had become stranded on a beach called Dunkirk. Anyone heard of Dunkirk or seen the movie? Now, Dunkirk was this area where, again, these Allied forces were stranded there, over 400,000 soldiers. And so if we could show the image were stranded there. British and French forces um, tried to stave off Germany from attacking because essentially these soldiers were, um, they were resigned to dying on this beach somehow. A call went forward to different allied nations that every single boat and vessel possible, if they could come and help rescue these soldiers... What's so extraordinary about this is that there were small little fishing boats that came. There were massive tankers that came, all from these allied forces. More than 330,000 soldiers were rescued, all evacuated from this beach. When they thought they would die, there was this rescue mission where people from various backgrounds, various types of vessels, all came to save these stranded soldiers. In many ways, I think this image is an image of the church that Jesus' followers are needed everywhere. To be a people who contend for renewal, for the way of Jesus, for kindness, for love, for sacrifice, for integrity, for generosity. Jesus' followers are needed everywhere. Now, different ones of us have different dispositions, for sure. But the reality is every single one of us is necessary when it comes to the renewal of the city. Uh, Dave Jennings, who recently joined our team, he's our church administrator. He's been a huge help. In addition to that, he's the founder of the New Life Community Health Center. He's also been someone uh, who's worked in executive leadership at a university and a, a seminary. And Dave, uh, if you first meet Dave, like borderline unfriendly, borderline, (laughs) maybe gruff. Some might even consider gruff. But one of the things that we've been talking about, meanwhile, me, I'm like a happy guy who wants to remember everyone's name and talk to them and, you know, and hang out and stuff. And one of the things we've been talking about is that, isn't it, isn't it cool? Uh, Like God, God, he. He uses different people with different giftings to do different things. And so Dave's like, hey, you know, like uh, after service, like kind of the last place I want to be is uh, in the lobby meeting people. (laughs) But I would love to help with the breakdown team and to help with moving stuff around and setting up environments and breaking down the baptismal and things like that. Each one of us, you know, we're all part of the economy of not only what's happening in the city, but what's happening in our church community, what's happening in the world around us. Uh, see, everything is spiritual, but everyone is also invited to be part of this work of renewal, wherever you are, to be a signpost of heaven, to be someone who's living out this call of following Jesus in generosity, following Jesus in integrity, and doing so as a collective unit together. Now, uh, not only that, but like, okay, so what does this require of us then? If, if all of us are invited to this, what specific you know, invitation is there for us? And it's this. It's to invest your time, your talent, and your treasure. To begin to start thinking about investing yourself in something bigger than yourself, now, here's the thing. This city regularly and routinely tells us, don't invest in something bigger than yours. Invest in yourself. Invest in your own ambition. In fact, the people around you, perhaps, I mean, some of you, if you think about the, your workplaces, you're like, I don't know, Drew, like people around me, like this city, everyone, it's a dog-eat-dog world here. And we're all living for something for ourselves, Now, here's what's fascinating. There's actually a book that was written, um, and it's actually kind of the sum uh, of research. And it's called The Good Life, and it's by Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. And it's the lessons from uh, the world's longest scientific study of happiness. Now, in this book called The Good Life, um, it's fascinating to see what their findings are as they surveyed many different people around happiness and what brings true happiness. Now, here's what happened. As this surveys was done, again, over this long period of time, they realized that there was one thing that brought people the most happiness, money. Just kidding, it's not money, come on! (laughs) I know, New Yorkers were like, yep, yep, money. (laughs) Exactly, that's exactly it. I knew it, I came to this town for that. No, it wasn't money! But isn't it funny? Our city, that's what we orient around. That's what we think is what brings us happiness. And what our aim is, is to accumulate as much as possible in a short amount of time. And those are the heroes that we venerate and accept. The study, what it actually revealed was the thing that was most meaningful was relationships. Now, There's different qualities to relationships that's talked about in this study, like it's quality over quantity, right? Like having a few really trusted relationships rather than having a gazillion friends. Uh, It talks about like kind of how do we steward and invest our time. One of the things it talks about in terms of the texture of relationships, especially the relationships that each one of us have that give us true happiness, it's in particular, it's the kind of relationship where you're in relationship with someone who is not self-centered, and you yourself are not self-centered. Now, you know what I'm talking about, right? To be in a relationship, in this symbiotic kind of relationship, where I care about the other person's well-being, I'm invested in their happiness. And in so doing, I actually receive this gift of happiness as well. And if we're both doing that for one another, then it's not this self-centered, self-absorbed kind of happiness. But instead, it's an incredibly long-lasting kind of happiness. Now, isn't that fascinating? Because here's what happens. In the city around us, we start thinking about ourselves. And especially when I'm going through something difficult, I think what I need to do is I need to pull back from any engagement with relationships and just be in my own self and in my own feelings and on Netflix. Like, that's what I need. And yet the invitation is actually, the best thing you can do for yourself is actually begin investing yourself in another relationship, not only for your own self promotion self-good, but actually for the good of others. That is the good life, to live this life of an outward orientation, to live for something bigger than yourself. Now, here's what's interesting. Cesar Chavez, a humanitarian worker out in California, he has this phrase, and I realize this is just a descriptive phrase that I that I found so compelling that I'm I, I'm using, obviously, it's out of context for this setting, but I I just wanted to point out what he writes. He says, the poor have time and the rich have money. Uh, The reality is, some of you, you're like, yeah, Drew, I'd love to do that, invest all that stuff, but like, honestly, I don't have time. You probably have money. And maybe you're working so hard for money, and maybe what God is calling you to do is to take steps of faith to start leveraging your money more generously, to give of that. Now, I realize some of us are in professions where maybe we don't have a whole lot of money, but we've got time, and we've got energy, and we've got talent, and maybe the call for you is to start thinking about how to use those gifts and talents and times for the good of others. Now, here's the thing, though, right? This sounds so idealistic, uh, and some of you, even as you're listening, you're like, dude, this is so idealistic, have this vision for living beyond yourself, um, and I, I love how Shane Claiborne puts it. Look, here's what he says. He says, Everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. I mean, that's what we've been taught, especially as young people. We've been taught to dream big, change the world. But at the end of the day, no one wants to do the dishes. I don't want to help build the dung gate. I was just thinking about that, right? Like, it's talking about, I don't want to help do that. But see, if all of us can be part of this work with our time, our talent, and our treasure, then something extraordinary can actually be done. Now, here's the reality. Like I said, as you've lived in the city, you and I realize, though, you're like, you know what, though? Like, Drew, I love this vision, but the people around me, they don't care about living for something bigger than themselves. They're looking to get their next promotion. They're looking to get, bypass everyone else. My boss is kind of looking to probably exploit me as much as they can. I mean, here's what happens, right? We enter into this, like kind of this naive view of the world, like we're, we're in it for renewal and God has called us. And then there's reality that punches us in the face. That's kind of like, wait a minute, like everyone else in this city though, they're just all in it for themselves. Here's what I gotta do. I better get mine and get out. I mean, isn't that how most of us approach life in the city and in the world around us? Now, here's the uniqueness of Christianity. Now, I realize if you're someone who's not a faith, as I basically share this next point, I realize that some of you are gonna be like, oh, you know what? I don't wanna follow that. And I get it. But honestly, I feel like it's my job to actually present this to you, to show you that it's a distinctly Christian view to actually call you to this kind of life. Because the Christian faith has always been an invitation to live not for yourself, but to live for something bigger. To give your life to God out of love and service. Now, that is different than the ways of New York, different than the ways of the world but to be a people who say, I live for something bigger. You see, Nehemiah was one person who did this, but there was a true and better Nehemiah to come. Jesus himself would come into the world as a servant to live and to die on your behalf and on my behalf. To base himself so that others might be exalted. And in so doing, reveal to us that the heart of God towards us is actually one of self-sacrificing love and showing us that there truly is a better way towards the good life. And the better way towards the good life is to be someone who's captivated by a vision of a God of tremendous love and sacrifice who shows us that this is a better way. Look at Philippians chapter two. This is what it says. It says, therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but towards the interests of others. What a beautiful vision. What if our families began to look like that? What if our neighborhoods began to look like that? What if our our workplaces began to look like that? What if our churches began to look like that? What if our city began to look like that? Maybe that's when and how renewal would happen. All of us playing a part in this grand story of renewal that God is doing.